0: Lord, we thank you for, uh, Lord, just the great privilege of having this recorded for us. Lord, to be able to to read and to hear about your incredible provision for your people. And Lord, the way that you delivered them, Lord, from the Egyptians, Lord, through this miraculous um, act, Lord, that you exercised, Lord, in protecting your people. Help us today, Lord, as we begin our time in Exodus to be teachable, to be humble, Lord, to have minds that are willing to think, Lord, and and hearts that are willing to be changed, Lord, because of your truth. Lord, what we know not would you, um, Lord, teach us. What we have not would you give us. What we are not, Lord, would you make us. And may I simply be your mouthpiece for this text. And Lord, give you all the glory as we, uh, as we look at this passage. Lord, We ask for your help now in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We are living in a day today when people read literature subjectively rather than with the eye to what the original author was intending when they wrote their story. So the question, what does it mean to you, has now replaced, what did the author actually mean? In other words, you might be in college somewhere, and the professor assigns for you um, pride and prejudice. And the question isn't, what did the author seek to accomplish through that story? The question that is more important is, well, what does it mean to you? And how, how does it impact you? And, and, and the answer, then, is subjective, It's not objective based on what the author desired to do. And when we take that same attitude and we apply it to the study of God's word, you can see what the problem is. Too many people then approach the Bible with a what-does-it-mean-to-me attitude rather than to seek to understand what it actually means. So we would rather read a passage and ask how it makes us feel than to ask the question, what is the author actually saying? And the end result, friends, is that too many people are happy with their own interpretations of what Scripture says rather than seeking to understand what the original authors intended when they wrote their books or wrote their poetry or wrote their prophecy or their letters. And friends, I want to say this lovingly. It doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is what it means. Now, I know we use the vernacular in the sense of a Bible study, and someone asks the question, you know, and they're talking, well, you know, to me, it means this. Like, well, we have to determine what it actually means rather than simply go with our feelings. Now, I'll put it this way the Word of God wasn't breathed out by God so that you could take it and subjectively change its meaning because of how you're feeling that day. He breathed it out. He has blessed us with his revealed word. And we would then rather subjectively say, oh, it makes me feel this certain way. And when God's word is breathed out, he had something specific in mind. Thus says the Lord can't be reduced to this is what it means to me. Let's think about this in the real world. Imagine today you leave church and you're heading down Center Street and you come to a stop sign. And rather than stop at the sign, you kind of just go through it. And before long, there's some lights that are behind you. And the police officer says to you, sir, madam, did you know that you ran that stop sign back there? And you all just kind of like chuckle a little bit. It's like, you know what? I love I love red and white and how it goes together. I love those combinations, and I actually love the word stop. And when I, when I see a stop sign, it, just, it makes me feel like I just need to stop where I'm going in life. It just reminds me that I need to pause a little bit more and, and, and just think about what, what life has to offer. And the police officer will say, give me your license, please. Why? Because there's a sign that has a purpose behind it. Someone, somewhere in the history of California, in our government, determined that a stop sign would be red and white and the shape that it is, and that it actually has a meaning. You can't subjectively say, well, but that's not for me. I feel it means this. Or how about this one? Um, Your... A bank calls you because you haven't made your mortgage payment for three months. And it's not because you don't have money. It's just because you're like, you know what? I just don't feel like it's really important to make a mortgage payment. Well, we have a contract, sir. Well, that might be what it means to you. But to me, it's like, you know, pay when I feel like paying. You might be out of a house pretty fast. Because someone somewhere at Chase Bank or whatever at bank it is that has your mortgage had determined, this is what this contract means. And you sign on the dotted line with the understanding that you've read it and you agree to these terms. It is not a subjective document. Okay, This is the real world. This is where we live, friends. But somehow, we think that when we come to the Word of God, it's okay to be subjective. It's okay to kind of, well, let's just feel what this means. No, God has breathed out his word and he means what he says and he says what he means and it's our job to get to that. And therefore, having gotten to that, to have an understanding of what God means and expects and desires for us to do. So friends, we we need to be really, really careful about this whole issue of being subjective in our understanding. Let me put it this way. If, gentlemen, if your wife writes out for you a grocery list and you begin to read it as a love note, sour cream, black olives, ketchup, chocolate, ice cream. She must love me. Pop-Tarts, bacon, Dishwasher soap, toothpaste, eggs, Cap'n Crunch. I'm loving her again. Dr. Pepper, ribeye steaks. She must really love me to say such things. Friends, it's a grocery list. Husbands, go get the groceries. The only way that list is a love note is when you come home having purchased everything on that list correctly. I heard a lot of amens there, right? You get the point here, guys. We have to understand that when we write certain things, an author writes certain things, that author has an intention. We call that the the authorial intent. And that is true also when we come to the Word of God. And So this morning, we're going to look at Exodus in a big picture. We're going to do what's called seeking to understand the melodic line of the book. And the idea of the melodic line is this, that we will handle a specific text better if we understand what the whole book is about. Or maybe to put it a little differently, every book of the Bible has a coherent, sustained message similar to the unique melody of a song. Now, I know I've done this with a number of you that have been to some of our semi-trust times, but I thought it'd be helpful for maybe those that haven't just to simply demonstrate what we mean. So we're going to play a little game here. I'm going to come up with a couple of tunes, and you're going to tell me what they are. Okay? So I'll sound them out. dun 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 All dun 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 alright some of you said Star Wars, right? But it's a certain aspect of Star Wars, isn't it? But you know it's Star Wars. How about this one? <laughs> right? Now, you recognize that melody why? Because you recognize the melody. You know, here's the melody. Here's another one. <laughs> right? Probably the most famous Christian song out there, right? "Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound." But understand, that's the melody. Now, because we know that song, we can also do it this way: dun dun, boom, do do do, pow pow pow, do boom boom boom, da da dee dee You're like Pastor Rod, what's gotten into you? My point here is to say there's a melody, but there are all these things that happen along with it, right? It can be harmony, there can be percussion, but there's still a melody. And as we come to a book of a Bible, there is this sustained theme that runs through that Bible that everything kind of hangs on. So, friends, as we, as we come now to the book of Exodus, we want to think about that. But let me just mention a few ways that we can figure out um, what a melodic line is from studying a book. So just briefly, there's three ways to do it. Some books actually have clear statements, The book of John, for example, says in chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's telling us there, this is why I wrote this book. If you go to Luke's gospel at the beginning, he tells us what his purpose is. It's found in verse four, but I'll begin at verse one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word um, have delivered delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed, All things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So, that certainty about Jesus Christ and the story of Jesus Christ is laid out by Luke very carefully. It's a purpose statement. Not all books have a purpose statement, though, some books have a top and tail. And what that means is there's something at the beginning of the book and there's something at the end of the book that is sounded that helps you understand what that book is about. We had a little bit of that, I think, in the book of James. This, this um, remaining steadfast under trial begins the book, and at the end there's, there's, a, there's a plea, there's a call to go and chase people down and bring them back who are not remaining steadfast. So there's still this idea of remaining steadfast. Some other books actually have phrases that are mentioned at the beginning and at the end because that's what the author is seeking to communicate. And then, of course, you have books that just have repeated statements, words, or themes that run throughout. And that's more what we have here in the book of Exodus. And so my point here this morning, where I want to take you this morning, is I I want to convince you that there is a melodic line of, the book of Exodus. But even more than that, I want you to be amazed at the melodic line of Exodus because it's not just something that is in Exodus, it's something also outside of Exodus that is recognized by the rest of Scripture as very important and very, very powerful. So my, my proposition this morning is the emphasis of the book of Exodus is that we are saved for God's glory. Or we could say you're delivered for God's glory. Or you could say you're redeemed for God's glory. It's all about God revealing his glory with the result of making him known. You see, the book of Exodus just doesn't stand by itself. You don't just open the Bible and say, well, here's the book of Exodus. It's isolated from everything else. It's just its own book. It's actually not its own book. It is a continuation and a process in the story, but it has its own unique purpose. And so we're going to seek to understand that. And I would like to to walk you through, first of all, how the theme is presented and develops through the book of Exodus. Secondly, I want to follow that by looking how that theme is supported in the rest of Scripture. And then also I would like for us to consider then uh, how we apply that theme to the structure of the book so friends, Exodus is not just a book. It is the very breath of God. And although it is the word of God, it is also a piece of literature. And I want to be careful with that because some of you might be, oh, wait a second, you're diminishing the word of God. No, I'm not. We're actually enhancing our understanding of the word of God when we identify it as a piece of literature because as a piece of literature, we then are, are have to shift gears to say how do i approach that piece of literature because different pieces of literature are studied differently right that's the point so let's jump now into this melodic line saved for god's glory first of all then god's glory revealed in particular in the book of exodus and if you have your bibles handy i just really recommend if you have your actual bibles rather than your phone you're going to be better off here because we're going to be covering lots of territory, and you might want to kind of put a marker here or there, okay? So first of all, I want you to see that God's glory is revealed in the in the Egypt story, which is Moses and Pharaoh, which goes from chapter 1 ultimately through chapter um, 15. This is the, the climax of the Egypt story. It's the passage that we read today, which is the actual exodus. And Moses is born in adversity and persecution, yet God in his providence, demonstrates his power through the plagues and then eventually through the actual exodus. And when Israel is standing at the Red Sea and the full Egyptian army is about to run them down, what do we find when we get to that account? So turn to then to Exodus chapter 14, Exodus 14, and follow along at verse 1 through 4. It says this, Then then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh." and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I will get glory over Pharaoh. This is where this word is introduced. We actually, I shouldn't say that. We go back to chapter 9 and verse 16. What we have there then is, uh, is God speaking about what was going to happen in the future as, as the plagues are taking place, and he says this, but for, the, for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power, or we could say to show my glory So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So God raises up Pharaoh to demonstrate his power, his name, his glory. And then, continuing in Exodus chapter 17, or chapter 14, verse 17 and following, we have the people now that are all in a panic because the Egyptian army is coming. And this is what we read And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. So you get this resounding, here's this glory thing, here's this glory thing. God is saying, I'm the one that's going to get the glory. Pharaoh's not going to get the glory. I'm going to get the glory. And the people went through the waters successfully as God had commanded the whole Egyptian army And that Egyptian army was swallowed up by the sea. And then in chapter 15, something wonderful happens. Moses and the people sing. They're celebrating their deliverance. They're celebrating what God has accomplished there. So in Exodus chapter 15, just notice how it begins. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed what? Gloriously, look at verse 21, which is the tale here of this song. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. And there's a couple other glories in that song too. But the point is there is this theme, this resounding gong, so to speak, of glory going through um, this whole Egypt um, section of the book of Exodus. Then, of course, there's the wilderness uh, story, which is Moses and the people who are grumbling. And we find that in chapter 16. Look at verse three. Verse three, basically they're saying, "Listen, we just can we go back or we just want to die? It's, a, it's, an, a, it's an exaggeration. And God then responds kind of graciously with a promise of provision. Look if you would at verse seven of chapter 16. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? You will see the glory of the Lord. Then in verse 10, And as soon as Aaron spoke, the whole congregation of the people of Israel, when they looked toward the wilderness and beheld the glory of the Lord, appeared in the cloud. Now you have a physical representation of God's glory. All right? So God does reveal himself to the people in the cloud, a visible display here. And here we see God accommodating himself to us, something tangible, giving a sense of who he is and how glorious he is. Then we move on to the next section, which would be the first Sinai um, account because they end up at, the Mount, at Mount Sinai, but there's kind of like two accounts of that. One has to do with the covenant. The other one has to do with the tabernacle. And here we have this account of the Ten Commandments. And what, is, what does God say right at the beginning of those Ten Commandments? Look at verse 1 of chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Well what's he saying there? I will not share my glory with anyone. I am the Lord your God. Then at the end of that section, as the covenant is, is confirmed in chapter 24, we have a, a, some more statements here about the glory of God. It's a little different. It's talking about those that went with Moses. It literally says that they saw the God of Israel, this is chapter 24 and verse uh, verses 9 through 11, but in particular verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement, a sapphire stone, like a very heaven for, for uh, clearness. And it did not lay his hands on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, there's some interpretive things going on there that that maybe what they saw wasn't actually God, but it was might want to say the the presence of God or the lingering presence of God, because the description here is what they saw at His feet, All right? But they, they, they see God, it says. And we jump down to verse 15. Then Moses went up to the mountain, uh, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on the mountain, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, He called Moses out of the uh, out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So again, here in this third section, we find the glory of God as as central, as as an anchor, so to speak, in our understanding of what is taking place with the people of God and God himself. Then the second section about uh, Mount Sinai, um, occurs in uh, chapter um, chapter 28 and following to the end. And this relates all to the tabernacle. And this is, you might say, a very kind of a, a detailed account of what should be done in the tabernacle, how it should be set up and how it should be built and things like that. And so there's some requirements that are there. And first of all, I want you to notice that the priest's garments then were to be created... Um, in a certain way, and notice in verse 2 of chapter 28, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Same thing is said in chapter 28, verse 40, you shall make them for glory and for beauty. In other words, those who are going to serve me in the tabernacle are to be a reflection of my glory in what they wear. That's what he's saying there. And then you jump down to chapter 29. In chapter 29, what we have there is, Uh, we begin at verse 43, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Okay. Again, God's glory is the means by which these people are actually coming to him and is, is, is what is taking place in this interaction with his people. And then we have in chapter 33, Moses requesting of God, show me your glory. All right, now, I'm not getting into all the details of these stories. What I'm trying to show you as we work through this book, there's this theme, this resounding theme of God's glory, right? And so we we move on then to the tabernacle. It's complete. And look at the, the last few verses of the book of Exodus. Chapter 40 and verses 34 and following. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So here you have at the end of the story, again, the tabernacle is built. The glory now of God has now come to reside in the tabernacle. All right? So in Egypt, in the wilderness, on, the, uh, on Mount Sinai is the glory of God that is emphasized And so truly, glory is central and essential to the argument of the book and to our understanding of how God is interacting with his people. But it is how the rest of Scripture understands the book of Exodus that helps us then see if this is right or not. In other words, one of the ways we can test whether or not we have a right understanding of the theme of Exodus is to look elsewhere in Scripture to see how it is used or talked about In those passages of Scripture. So let's test it out a little bit. How does the rest of Scripture view the book of Exodus and speak about the book of Exodus? Well, let's jump then to from what glory revealed to God's glory affirmed, okay? And first of all, we're going to find it being affirmed in the Psalms. And some of these I've actually put the verses up there so that you can see. Here, we're told the following. both, This is a psalm then walking through this Exodus experience in, in the whole is the larger story of what happens with Israel. But verses 6 through 12 talk about the Exodus account. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the sea, Red, he rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the, of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, and they sang his praise. You have his mighty power, and then you have the power of the enemies. The glory of God was at stake. The glory of God is the issue here. Then we jump to the Gospels. And it's interesting, you go to the Gospels in particular, there's this thing called the transfiguration. And it's found in three accounts. We're going to look at Luke's account in particular. But in this transfiguration, we're going to find Moses and Elijah and Jesus all appearing in Glory, all right. So let, let's just follow along here, uh, chapter um, chapter nine of Luke and verse twenty-eight. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up into the mountain to pray. This is Jesus with them, right? And he was praying the appearance, or as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were walking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, literally his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but they, when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the, the men were parting from him. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents or tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was saying these th- as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. I read that whole section because hopefully you were picking up on the language that's being used there is language that you're finding in the book of Exodus. There's the glory that's being talked about. Moses is mentioned here. There is this, this reflection that is taking place. It's a wonderful account. But it is all tied back to the book of Exodus. And what is the resounding theme? Glory. And we move to the epistles now, the epistles. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I I want you, I don't have the the passage up here, it's a little longer, but I I would like for you to turn there to 2 Corinthians 3 and verses 7 and following. And I want you to notice how frequently glory is mentioned by Paul. So 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 18. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory, and what he's talking about here is the law, that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more what? Glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed in what? Glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. What he's saying is that the coming of the law was a glorious thing. But the coming of the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a far more glorious thing, which makes them, the first thing, less glorious. (laughs) All right? That's his argument. He's arguing from the book of Exodus about glory. We jump down to verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So he's talking about those who remain Jews who are not converted. When they read the Old Testament scriptures, they read it with a veil. But we who are God's children have the veil removed. And we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit at work in us so that we can see, we can understand. Verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Paul's whole argument here is rooted in the book of Exodus and the glory of the Lord that is present throughout it. Then Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Again, glory, glory, glory. It's like, wow. I mean, the things that are being talked about as far as Exodus, what are they pulling out? They're pulling out the glory of the Lord. So Exodus itself may convince you that the theme is the glory of God. The apostles move forward to attaching the glory of God directed in the person in the face of Christ. Another question might be then, all right, you've mentioned glory a lot, Pastor. What is glory? Good question. So let's talk about that. There's really two ways that glory is used in Scripture. And the first way, basically, is that it's a word that means honor or reputation. So when God delivers his people from the hands of the Egyptians, he's demonstrating his excellent reputation, which then results in him being honored. It makes God look good, I guess, in common vernacular terms. It makes him look good. His power, his brilliance, and his majesty is on display. It's in that sense that Isaiah, in chapter 43, verse 7, says, where, God speaks of his, he, speaks, where he speaks about God's children, whom I created for my glory. For my, what? Reputation. For my honor. In Romans 3.23, where Paul says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We we don't have that same reputation. We don't have that same honor in and of ourselves. Then again, Hebrews 1.3, it says that the sun is the radiance of the glory of God. So it's this idea of honor, this idea of of excellent reputation. The second way it's used is just talking about the beauty of God's manifold uh, perfections, his attributes, his character, his being. It's an attempt to put into words what God is like in his magnificence and in his purity. And it refers to his fullness of all that is good. And so the term might focus on his different attributes from time to time, like his power and wisdom and mercy and justice, because each one is awesome in its magnitude and quality. But in general, God's glory is the perfect harmony of all his attributes into one Infinitely beautiful being. And so it's closely associated with his name. So sometimes the expression in his name is somewhat a synonym to his glory. All right. So when something is done for his name's sake, it virtually means the same thing as doing something for his glory. So glory is simply specifies more clearly the nature of God's being while the term name leaves that nature unspecified. So when we see this theme saved, delivered, redeemed for God's glory, we recognize then that God is desiring to be on display. Right. So hear here this. The story of Exodus, the book of Exodus, the narrative story in the book of Exodus... It's about the people, but it's ultimately about who? It's about God. It's about God interacting with his people. It's about God being on display. It's about God receiving the honor. It's about God being glorified for who he is. And so we've seen God's glory revealed, um, God's glory um, Affirmed, And now I want to talk about God's glory declared because I think associated with God's glory is something that we, we read. I didn't, didn't kind of emphasize it, but I think there's something important because by means of God's glory, there is something else that takes place. And that other thing that takes place is that when God is seen and is glorified, the end result is that he is known. Okay. So God is known, first of all, through his providence. And now we're kind of working at the the structure of the book. And these first 18 chapters are really the storyline of the book. And what happens here is that God is at work revealing himself, and he's revealing himself in such a way that he may be known. And so we go to the Egypt account, uh, this interaction that, that God has then with Pharaoh... And in chapter 14, verse 4, the the, the whole goal here is he wants to receive the glory, but he wants the Egyptians to know that I am the Lord. And then chapter 14, in verse 17 and 18, I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Okay? So there's this emphasis here then that, that glory is the means, then, by which he is declaring himself to be the only true God, the one beautiful true God. So this was true in Egypt's day, but friends, it is also true in our day that God seeks to get the glory through his providence in our lives. And friends, we need to pause and think about that. Things may happen to us. We go through struggles, or we pray, and God provides for us. He works things out in certain ways. He is present with us when we're going through suffering. Those are all means by which God is receiving glory for his provision by virtue of the fact he's doing that in our lives so that he may be known. So God might put you in a hospital bed so that you can interact with someone else. He might have you have a flat tire because he wants to be glorified in that moment by someone who may come by to help you out. I don't know. God is at work bringing glory to himself through our trials and through our blessings. So God's work in provision demonstrates that he is worthy to be worshipped. Now the Egyptians, they saw his glory, they recognized this is the God of Israel who's doing this, but they ultimately reject him. And friends, our lives, our dependence on Christ through difficult times, as well as praising him and giving him glory during times of prosperity, is a means by which we are vehicles to testify to the world that he is God. And so that's him being known in the Egypt story, but there's also him being known in the wilderness account. Again, chapter 16, verses 10 through 12, but the emphasis there to the Israelites is, I'm going to to show you my glory. Then you, he's speaking to the Israelites, shall know that I am the Lord your God. And it's interesting that Psalm 106 tells us that Israel had forgotten God. And it's interesting that God's people, who should know God, don't know God and need to know God. (laughs) And it's a reminder to us that just because we identify ourselves as Christians, just because we attend church, does not necessarily mean that we know God. We can't assume that the church knows God. Living in a sinful world will pull us in many ways to drift away from who God really is. We saw that in the book of James, didn't we, last week? Too many people, friends, identify themselves as Christians who truly don't know God. Their Christianity is simply a religion. Their Christianity is might want to say their, their moral compass. It's a family religion. We like the fellowship, we like the friendship. We like the getting together with people, but they don't know God. And we can't assume then that people of the church know God. And that's why each Sunday we want to proclaim who He is. We want to proclaim his gospel, and we should never get tired of that. So it's just a lesson for us that, yes, Egypt needs to know who God is. But we who identify ourselves as followers of Christ, we need to know who God is. All right? So God wants to make himself known in the church. God is known through his providence. He saves and he delivers. Secondly, God is known through his precepts. He speaks demands. This is the section now where it's called the covenant section. This is when he lays out the Ten Commandments and the law. But notice how this section begins, chapter 19, in particular, verses 4 through 6. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings, is a wonderful expression, right? God's deliverance and power, and brought you to myself. God's saying, this is what happened when I delivered you from the Egyptians. I was bringing you to myself. And not only am I bringing you to myself, I'm bringing to you to myself so that I can speak to you. Now, friends, don't be careful because American Christian culture does not like the Old Testament much, and they certainly don't like the law. But if we're going to follow Christ and be faithful to him, the Old Testament is critical. Right, We have to have an understanding of the Old Testament, and we must love the law. And God, in his love and his kindness, then begins to speak. And then, in doing that, he reveals himself. So he gives us the Ten Commandments, which are the heart of living life for God and his glory. And, and have been the foundation for laws and, and the morality of nations throughout the years. And then he lays down laws, and I'll just list off a number of things that he, he, he deals with. Slavery, battery, murder, manslaughter, restitution, social justice, slander, bearing false witness, festivals and special days, sacrifices. He lays all those things out, lots of questions, lots of answers, to make sure this newly formed nation... Say, reformed nation in the wilderness has a framework by which they can function and live and understand him. His glory is the means by which he desires to make himself known. And when God speaks, friends, we need to listen. Now hear this. You would not like a silent God. Because that silent God wouldn't be saying anything, obviously, duh. But then you wouldn't be receiving anything. And you'd be lost. You'd be floundering. But God has spoken. He has revealed himself. He has decided to explain things or give parameters and guidelines and helps so that we can think clearly and we can function in a way that would honor him. So we need to be thankful for those precepts. So God is known through his providence. He's known through his precepts. He's also known through his presence. He settles and dwells. It is through God settling and dwelling among us that he continues to be known. But his presence, friends, is a dangerous thing. He is holy and therefore must remain with but a part in the Holy of Holies when the tabernacle is established. This whole section now is all about the tabernacle. And of course, the tabernacle is, is the place where God is present then with his people. In this story, however, before the tabernacle is actually finished, Moses goes out to meet with God outside of the camp in what's called the tent of meeting. And the tent of meeting basically is, is the, uh, the temporary tabernacle where Moses enters and he is able to interact with God face to face. Now it's not literally face to face, it's an expression that means there is this personal kind of interaction going on because later in the same section, when it says faces, it says no one can actually see God and live. The point is that's where Moses went. And people always knew: hey, Moses is out there, he's talking to God. Why? Because they could see that the cloud had descended from heaven and was covering the entrance of the tent of meeting, okay? But the whole point was that God comes down, and God has has entered, he's condescended to our world here in the tabernacle, that's what he's saying here, so that he can actually have communication with his people, but in particular through Moses. So this was a level of intimacy and fellowship that no human being had experienced since the day that God banished Adam and Eve from the garden. God was always at a distance. Now he has come near in the tent of meeting and then ultimately in the tabernacle. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 16 and 17, we have this. Paul says that according to the riches of his glory, he, God, um, may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That tent of meeting, friends, is not out there. It's in here now because of Christ. This is why scripture says we can come boldly to the throne of grace. See, we have the wonderful blessing to, to, to actually face God in all his glory in our own selves in our own hearts why because the holy spirit has been sent to reside in us by Jesus himself see we have that privilege back then they didn't have that privilege they had to go through ultimately a mediator and as wonderful as the story of exodus is it is a story that is left unfinished look again if you would please at chapter chapter 40 and verse 34 All of this emphasis on God's glory, on his deliverance, and these guidelines that he gives both for the law, the covenant that they agree on, as well as the instructions for the tabernacle. The tabernacle is built. It is finished. Look at chapter 40 and verse 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Catch this. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, the fire by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journey. So the the tabernacle was completed, but even Moses was not able to ultimately go in. The story is unfinished. The story is still to be completed, and ultimately is completed when Jesus comes. Okay, So this is is important for us to see. So the book of Exodus continues the story in Genesis, but then after Exodus, the whole story of redemption continues also. But there are themes and topics in Exodus that just resound through the rest of Scripture. Now, having looked at all this, I want to conclude just with two thoughts that flow out of this that might help us think a little bit more about the importance of Exodus for us. Number one, um, the word salvation. Exodus is a wonderful picture of our salvation. Now, you don't want to reduce it down to just that. There's lots of things that are going on, but there's, there's this wonderful picture that Exodus gives us. Again, notice the book begins in chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. We haven't read it, but it begins with the people of God in slavery to a pagan king who is demanding that they build cities, and he is removing straw from their bricks. And so it's hard, hard work. Then at the end of the book, those who began slavery are now in service to the king of kings. Those who were enslaved in bondage are now bonded to Yahweh, to God. Those who began building the city for a pagan king are now building a tabernacle for the living God. And even later in Scripture, we talked about being enslaved to sin, but enslaved to Christ. It's right to be enslaved. The question is, who are you enslaved to? Well, if you're enslaved to God, he's a good God. Big difference. And friends, it's a foreshadowing of our salvation where God takes us from the bondage of our slavery, of our sin, and gives us freedom in him. It echoes the cry of all who have come to God through Christ that we are free at last. And friends, true freedom is found in uniting yourself to Christ through his gospel. Just a wonderful picture, and you're going to see that unfold as we study through here. Secondly, I want to just emphasize this other word, and it's the word sanctification. The theme of glory is a wonderful reminder of the goal and the activity of our sanctification. The Apostle Paul sums it up well. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what's the answer? Do all to the glory of God. The writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith rightly saw this as the primary and essential goal of mankind, so they begin with this. Catechism number one, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is how central the glory of God is. That's why if you look at our mission statement, it says we exist to glorify God by building a community of believers who are actively committed to knowing and applying and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's got to be to glorify God first. This is our sanctification. This is what we're about, glorifying God in every area of our lives. But not only is it the goal of our sanctification, it is also the activity that we are involved in. And Jesus instructs us to help us understand what that looks like. And that's what we have in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The way we live our lives is the means by which people see our good works that flow out of our interaction with God and the kind of sanctification we have and will then cause other people to glorify God. So it's evangelistic. See, friends, the glory of God is essential. Now, look at the, look at the title of uh, this sermon series. This is the book of Exodus. You look at the title there. What does it say? I will be what? I will be known. God is saying in this book, yes, I want to receive the glory, but I want to receive the glory because I will be known. God is about making himself known. And he makes himself known through providence, through his word, and also with his presence my friends, I, I just want you to go home and read Exodus with some new lenses, so to speak, to begin to see how do all these stories, how do all these activities relate to God demonstrating his glory? Why do you think God brought about plagues? What was he trying to do? <laughs> I want you to see my glory. I want you to see how powerful I am and that I am the only God. Your gods are nothing. They don't exist. They're a figment of your imagination. There's only one God, and it's me. It's my glory. And I want you to know that. This is Exodus, friends. And may this be an, an opportunity then for us to, to, to jump into something maybe afresh or something somewhat familiar and see what God has for us. Lord, help us today. We've labored with a long book just to see the nuances that are there. Lord, we want to praise you because you are worthy to be praised. You deserve all honor, all glory. But Lord, because you have demonstrated yourself, because you are on display in the pages of your word, in the history of mankind, you want to be known. But it's not that you want to be known and you can't. You want to be known and you are known. And you will be known because... One day, everyone will bow the knee before you. Everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, Lord, we praise you. You're not just a God that popped up one day. As the songs that we're about to sing says, Lord, you you are the ancient of days. And, Lord, you are the one in whom we put our faith and our trust. Lord, thank you. Help us now as we walk through this book together, Lord. May it live, may it resound in us. May we contemplate what's being said. Lord, some passages and the text are gonna be difficult, but give us wisdom, give us discernment. Help me as, as your messenger, Lord, to, to help us as a church think through these issues so that we can truly glorify you with our lives. We ask this now in your name, amen.